Chapter 18 of History of Philosophy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of Philosophy by William Turner. Chapter 18. Philosophy of the Romans. The Pythagoreans of Magna Graecia were the first to introduce Greek philosophy into Italy. Pythagorean philosophy, however, never took deep root in Roman soil. Indeed, Although Pythagorean speculation flourished in Italy as early as the 6th century, it was not until the beginning of the 2nd century before Christ that Rome began to feel the power of Greek literature and Greek art, and it was about the same time that the influence of Greek philosophy was first felt. That the Romans did not accept, without a struggle, this imposition of a foreign culture is evident from the fact that, in 161 BC, residence in Rome was by a decree of the Senate, forbidden to philosophers and rhetoricians. Later, however, the conquest of Greece and the military expeditions of Pompey, Caesar, Antony, and Augustus broadened the minds of the Romans, rendered them susceptible to the beauty of Greek literature, and led to the inflow of Greek learning, and to the establishment in Rome of the representative teachers of Greek philosophy. Cicero was, therefore, contrasting his own age with the more conservative past when he said, Philosophia Jacuit usque ad hanc aetatem. In accepting the philosophy of Greece, the Roman spirit asserted its practical tendency, selecting what was more easily assimilated, and modifying what it accepted, by imparting to it a more practical character. Thus it was the ethical philosophy of the Epicureans and Stoics and the eclectic systems of later times, rather than the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle, that throve when transplanted to Roman soil. Cicero. Life. Marcus Tullius Cicero is the best-known representative of Roman eclecticism. He was born at Arpinum in 106 BC, and died at Formiae, 43 BC. He had for teachers Phaedrus the Epicurean, Philo of Larissa, representing the new academy, Diodotus the Stoic, and Antiochus, an exponent of the later eclecticism of the academy. In addition to the advantages to be derived from such a training, he possessed a knowledge, widely extended if not always accurate, of the philosophical literature of pre-Socratic and Socratic schools. He did not lay claim to any great independence as a philosopher, being willing, as he tells us, to take credit merely for the art with which he clothed Greek philosophy in Roman dress. Verba tantum affero quibus abundo. In this self-appointed task, Cicero is not always successful, his account of the doctrines of the pre-Socratic philosophers being especially inaccurate. Sources Cicero's principal philosophical works are Academica or Quaesiones Academicae, Tusculanae Disputationes, Definibus, De Natura Deorum, De Officiis, De Divinatione, unfinished, De Republica, of which about a third part was discovered and published in 1822 by Cardinal May, Paradoxa Stoicorum, De Senectute, De Amicitia, De Fato. Doctrines General Idea of Philosophy Cicero describes himself as a member of the New Academy. His philosophy is, in point of fact, an eclecticism based on skepticism. So impressed was he with the war of philosophical systems that he despaired of arriving at certainty and was content to accept probability as the guide of conduct. 
but whenever he discovered that philosophical schools could be reconciled he strove to coordinate the common elements into a system loosely connected as is every system of eclecticism theory of knowledge all our knowledge rests in ultimate analysis on immediate certainty which is variously called notiones innatae notiones nobis in situ, or since immediate knowledge is common to all men consensus gentium in the tusculan disputations for example cicero speaks of the principles of morality as in it sunt enim ingeniis nostris semina innata virtutum these elements of knowledge are antecedent to all experience we have therefore in cicero's theory of knowledge the first explicit expression of the doctrine of innate ideas theological notions cicero in his proof of the existence of god falls back on the innate idea of god the presence of which in the minds of all men is proved by the universality of the belief in a supreme being he brings forward also the teleological argument in its stoic form contending that the epicurean doctrine of chance is as absurd as would be the expectation that the twenty-one letters of the latin alphabet could by being poured out at random produce the annals of aeneas he attaches great importance to the doctrine of providence and of the divine government of the universe anthropology with the belief in god is intimately associated the conviction of the dignity of man the soul is of supernatural origin animorum nulla in terris origo inveniri potest it is different from matter still cicero does not altogether exclude the stoic idea of the soul as a fire-like substance he teaches that the soul is immortal having recourse to the platonic arguments as well as to the inner conviction and universal consent in his incomplete treatise de fato he proves the freedom of the will by similar arguments ethics in this portion of his philosophy cicero is a follower of the eclectic stoics on the one hand he rejects the epicurean doctrine that pleasure is the highest good but when on the other hand he adopts the stoic doctrine of virtue he is too much of a man of the world not to recognize that the stoic morality is too exalted or too severe to be applied to everyday life accordingly he modifies the severity of stoicism by introducing the platonic and aristotelian teaching that honors wealth etc are goods although subordinate to virtue which is the chief good he teaches that while virtue is sufficient for vita beata external goods are also necessary for vita beatissima a distinction borrowed from antiochus of ascalon the morally good honestum is that which is intrinsically praiseworthy historical position cicero as has been said laid no claim to originality as a philosopher he merely collected and assimilated the philosophical doctrines of the greeks he is the truest representative of the eclecticism of this period chief among cicero's followers was varro one hundred sixteen to twenty seven b c whom seneca calls doctissimus romanorum he was more famous as a scholar than as an independent philosopher like cicero he was a stoic and an eclectic unlike the other philosophers of rome titus lucretius carus ninety five to fifty one b c is not an eclectic in his poem de rerum natura he adheres closely to the doctrine of epicurus under the first emperors the school of the sextians acquired considerable importance the founder quintus sextius was born about seventy b c 
he was succeeded by his son, under whose leadership the school came to include among its adherents Socian, Celsus, and Fabianus. Soon, however, it dwindled into insignificance, so that in Seneca's time it had entirely ceased to exist. From the few scattered utterances of the Sextians which have come down to us, and from the account given by Seneca, it is evident that the teaching of the school was Stoicism tinged in one or two points of doctrine with Pythagoreanism. In the first century of our era, there flourished in Rome an important branch of the Stoic school. It included Lucius Aeneas Carnutus, died A.D. 68, Aulus Persius Flaccus, A.D. 34-62, Lucius Aeneas Seneca, and his nephew Marcus Aeneas Seneca, A.D. 39-65. Seneca, the most important of these, was born about the beginning of the Christian era at Cordoba in Spain. He owed his philosophical training to the Sextians and other Stoics. In A.D. 65, he committed suicide by order of Nero, whose counselor he had been. His writings possess great value as sources for the history of the Stoic school. He agrees in all essentials with the early Stoics, although in many points of detail he follows the later representatives of the school, who modify the doctrines of Zeno and Chrysippus in more than one respect. Towards the end of the first century, Musonius Rufus was distinguished in Rome as a teacher of Stoic philosophy. He confined his teaching, however, more strictly than Seneca had done, to the ethical application of Stoicism. The most important of his disciples was Epictetus, the philosopher's slave, a Phrygian who lived in Rome from the time of Nero to that of Trajan, A.D. 117. The works entitled Diatribae and Antiridion contain the discourses of Epictetus as written down by his disciple Arian. Epictetus defines philosophy to consist in learning what to avoid and what to desire. In accordance with this definition, he develops a system of practical philosophy, teaching, with the Stoics, that happiness is to be found in independence of external things. Closely allied to Epictetus is the emperor philosopher Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, A.D. 121-180. His work, entitled Ta Eis Eauton, consists of aphorisms written down in the form of memoranda, or notes for personal guidance. His teaching agrees with that of the Stoics. He insists more than did the other Stoics on the kinship of man to God. In order to secure happiness, man must lose his soul from the bonds of interest in things external, and, retiring within himself, learn to become like to God by becoming resigned to the will of God, and by loving all his fellow men, excluding neither the weak and erring nor the ungrateful and hostile. Retrospect. The philosophy of the Romans reflects the essential traits of the Roman character. It is practical in its aims. It subordinates theoretical inquiry to problems of conduct, thus depriving itself of the power of systematic development, and condemning itself to the circumscribed task of assimilating and applying what the Greek masters had taught. Character of Greek Philosophy we have now reached a point whence we may look back over the whole course of the development of Greek speculation before we turn to the study of a new era, in which Greek civilization and Greek philosophy came into contact with the religions of the East and were influenced by them. The civilization of Greece had a character peculiar to itself. The national spirit, to use a Hegelian phrase, which dominated the life of the nation, determined the character of the literature, the art, the political institutions, as well as the philosophy of the country. 
what then is the character which the national spirit of greece imparted to greek philosophy the answer to this question is best reached by a comparison of greek with oriental philosophy on the one hand and with medieval and modern philosophy on the other compared with oriental philosophy the philosophy of greece is remarkable in the first place for its manifold completeness it contained in germ all the systems that were to appear in subsequent times scarcely a problem of speculative or practical philosophy failed to receive attention at the hands of the philosophers of greece oriental speculation on the contrary being centered round a few problems of physics theology and ethics fell far short of hellenic speculation in breadth and completeness in the next place while oriental thought was stagnant producing throughout long ages of inquiry not more than a few schools and exhibiting in its development a certain languid sameness the course of thought in greece was free and active producing a variety of systems of speculation and manifesting all the freedom force and supple pliancy of the greek mind finally the comparison of greek with oriental philosophy furnishes an instance of the essential racial difference between greece and the orient the east was ruled by metaphor the oriental mind being strangely averse to the direct and natural mode of expression the greek mind on the contrary abhorred all intricacy and metaphorical tortuousness it went towards the truth with a directness and formulated conclusions with a boldness which may appear childish in the case of a thales or an anaximander but which nevertheless must command our admiration when we come to reflect how far thales and anaximander have advanced beyond the mythological concept of the universe completeness productive activity and directness are therefore the qualities which greek philosophy exhibits when compared with the philosophy of the east the comparison of greek with modern philosophy suggests at the very outset the trait which is most distinctive of greek civilization greek life greek art greek literature and greek religion were objective modern civilization on the contrary is more subjective than objective to this general contrast of greek life and modern life the philosophy of greece and modern philosophy offer no exception at first in the period of beginnings greek philosophy was entirely objective in the second period the period of greatest perfection the subjective element in philosophical speculation received due attention it was only in the third period when philosophy began to degenerate that the subjective element became unduly prominent in greek philosophy at the period of its greatest perfection in its golden age we find the union of the subjective and objective elements the belief in the continuity of the spiritual with the material a continuity which is not incompatible with the distinction between matter and spirit we find too the conviction that the inquiry into the conditions of knowledge does not destroy but rather confirms the trustworthiness of our impressions of the external world modern philosophy on the contrary starts out with the supposition that there is an original antithesis between object and subject between matter and mind between the impression of sense and the verdict of pure reason the greek even in his most abstract idealism was never so abstract as the modern transcendentalist and in his philosophical realism he always knew how to stop short of the crudeness of materialism modern speculation has tended towards centralizing philosophy on self the greek always considered that other self nature is the chief subject of inquiry in a word 
Greek philosophy, at least in the golden age of its development, was more true to nature than modern speculation is. This fidelity to nature is, however, a source of weakness as well as of strength. The spirit of naturalness prevented the Greek from looking beyond nature for his ideal in art. It prevented him in his philosophy from carrying his theological speculations far enough to determine, for example, the notion of personality. It was left for Christian speculation to complete the work of Plato and Aristotle, and, by laboring in the Greek spirit of completeness and manifoldness, to determine, as it did in the golden age of medieval philosophy, that faith and reason are at once distinct and continuous. In this way, Christian philosophy carried the Greek fidelity to nature into the region of the supernatural, refusing to admit an antagonism between these two phases of reality, the world of reason and the world of faith, just as the Greeks had refused to admit the antithesis between mind and matter, which is the postulate of modern philosophy. Before we come to the philosophy of the Christian era, it is necessary to outline the rise and course of thought in the Alexandrian school, for it was in Alexandria that the ancient world first came into contact with the civilization of the new era. End of chapter 18